It gives me great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Jonathan Schneer, who will be speaking to us about his publication, Ministers at War, Winston Churchill and His War Cabinet. Um, Dr. Jonathan Schneer is the modern British <coughs> historian at Georgia Tech in the School of History, Technology, and Society. He is a co-editor of two books and the author of six more, including London, 1900, The Imperial Metropolis, The Thames, England's River, and most recently, The Balfour Declaration. It's the origins of the Arab-Israeli conflict, which won a 2010 National Jewish Book Award. He has published articles in leading scholarly journals and collections of essays. He was a founding member of the Radical History Review and served as its book editor, <coughs> book review editor for seven years. He has received um, fellowships from the Whiting Foundation, the American Council of Learned Societies, and from numerous Oxford and Cambridge colleges. Uh, Dr. Schneer lives in Decatur, Georgia, and following today's presentation, he will be signing copies of his books in the uh, bow room behind us. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Jonathan Schneer. Um, thank you. This is working, obviously, yes. Thank you very much, uh, John Lennon, for that uh, generous introduction. And thank you all for coming. Um, and I want to thank also um, people whose names I don't even know who are connected with the Boston Athenaeum who have expedited this whole thing. <clears throat> I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Um, all right, so now I'll begin. I've just written a book about Winston Churchill's war cabinet. The war cabinet was a subset The War Cabinet was a subset of a larger body, which was the Cabinet itself. The War Cabinet dealt only with the most important issues raised by World War II. And at least to begin with, its members uh, had no departmental responsibilities to distract them. The larger Cabinet included War Cabinet ministers and also ministers and secretaries of various departments, including, you know, minister of supply, minister of town and country planning, ministers of mines, so on and so forth. I'll be mentioning today both the cabinet and the war cabinet. So Churchill formed his war cabinet in May 1940, and it had five members, including himself, at the start, over the course of the war, he enlarged it to suit circumstances, and the cast of characters shifted over time, but it never had more than eight members at one time. Um, here is a photo of the original eight-man team. Only two members remained constant. Churchill himself, of course, and also Clement Attlee, who was the leader of the Labor Party, and that's Clement Attlee. 
three other men served in the war cabinet for most of the war. And they were, and I think probably some of these are names that you'll be familiar with, Anthony Eden, um, and then uh, a great trade unionist uh, for the Labor Party, Ernest Bevan, um, and then a non-party man, although with conservative inclinations, whose name was Sir John Anderson. Um, then uh, a very extraordinary figure, Herbert Morrison, who belonged to the Labor Party, served for nearly three years in the war cabinet. Moreover, there are two extraordinary individuals who flashed through it like comets. One was the conservative Lord Beaverbrook, a great um, newspaper magnate, um, the sort of Rupert Murdoch of his day, perhaps. And then the other who went through so quickly, uh, the socialist whose name was Stafford Cripps. So I can't talk about all these people uh, in one hour or less than an hour, 45 minutes today. But because I don't discuss all their roles or the roles of others who served, for example, Neville Chamberlain uh, or Kingsley Wood, who you probably don't know, um, it doesn't mean that they were unimportant. But for their roles and for the roles of several others who served at one time or another in Churchill's war cabinet, I have a suggestion, which is that you buy and read my book. <laughs> um, so, led by Winston Churchill, the men whose names I've mentioned, and some whose names I haven't even mentioned, successfully steered Great Britain through the most terrible crisis in her modern history. And Churchill's war cabinet has been deservedly celebrated ever since. However, the story is more complicated than you might think. And the title of my book, Ministers at War, has a double meaning. Purpose, purposely, obviously. Churchill's war cabinet warred against the Nazis, but also its members sometimes warred against each other. This has been mentioned by historians, but it has generally been downplayed. And what I try to do in the book is to present a more complex, a more nuanced portrait of the war cabinet than is commonly offered. You could say that I shake the historical kaleidoscope to show familiar pieces in unfamiliar patterns. And that's what I'm going to try to do for you in the next 45 minutes. I take it as a given that everyone in this room is familiar with and accepts the common assessment. Churchill's war cabinet saved Britain and helped to save the world from Nazi horror. I agree. I would never minimize the greatness of Winston Churchill or of his wartime coalition government. We all owe it an unpayable debt. However, life is not black and white. Life is not simple. Churchill's war cabinet was not simply a smooth functioning machine. Its members included 
its members, including the prime minister, were without a doubt high-powered, hard men. They had great talent. They had great capacity for work. Also, they had great ambitions. They had great egos. They worked together to save their country, but it was not always smooth sailing. And on more than one occasion, conflict within the war cabinet threatened to capsize the ship altogether. Moreover, today we think of Winston Churchill as the indispensable man. It's impossible for us to imagine Britain during the Second World War without Winston Churchill as prime minister. But believe me, it was not impossible then. And I'll be explaining that. So in the book, I show how Churchill assembled his high-powered team in May 1940. And it included men whose politics conflicted more starkly than do those of American liberal Democrats and Tea Party Republicans today. Socialists like Clement Attlee or Ernest Bevan or Herbert Morrison or Stafford Cripps believed in nationalizing the means of production, distribution, and exchange. Um, I think maybe there's one um, American Democrat who believes in part of that, Bernie Sanders of Vermont, but no other Democrat in this country does. Um, Stafford Cripps was not even certain, by the way, that nationalization, uh, if carried out, could be maintained without recourse to violence. And also the socialists believed that the government should sponsor far-reaching social welfare programs, more far-reaching than those favored by American liberals today. And then on the other hand, the conservatives in Churchill's government, men like Chamberlain, Halifax, Beaverbrook, believed quite firmly in free enterprise. They thought that the government should usually keep hands off the economy. And they didn't believe that it had a major role to play with regard to social welfare either. Churchill himself was instinctively a man of the right. And yet he was determined during the war to keep this disparate team together. And by and large, he did it. In the book, I show how his disparate team faced the problems of the war. For a year, Britain and her empire stood alone against the Nazis. And during that period, the war cabinet ministers largely suppressed whatever ideological and personal tensions existed among them. But also, I show how once Russia and then the United States entered the fray, um, the war cabinet ministers began to argue. Uh, then their jealousies, their enmities, their strains that had always been present but always papered over now grew apparent. And ideological conflict amongst them grew ever more fierce. I show in the book how Churchill strove quite heroically but with decreasing effect to contain all of this. In 1945, labor pulled out of the coalition government. And as soon as Germany surrendered, Churchill called a general election. 
That's the general election of 1945, of course. And that proved to be one of the worst-tempered elections of the 20th century in Britain. All the pent-up frustrations of the previous five years finally burst forth. It was like the long-delayed eruption of a volcano. And what I've just done, actually, is give, uh, give you a quick resume of the book. Um, what I want to do uh, this afternoon is to give you a taste of part of it. I'm going to show you how the members of the War Cabinet functioned for good and for ill before 1945. And also, I'm going to show you how one of the War Cabinet ministers came to the conclusion that he could run the war and the War Cabinet better than Winston Churchill could. And I'll show you how Churchill saw off the threat posed by this man. Okay, so, the men of the War Cabinet sat around a table every Monday afternoon at 5.30, every Wednesday and Thursday at noon, attempting to hammer out policy on the most pressing domestic, foreign, and imperial issues raised by the war. During periods of crisis, they met more than three times a week. In fact, sometimes they met three times a day. At first, the war cabinet met in the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. Oops, wrong one. There, cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. Um, during the Blitz, and when the V1 and V2 attacks were occurring, they usually met in a suite of underground rooms in the basement of the new government office at the corner of Horse Guards Road and King Charles Street, just across from St. James Park. And today that site is a museum called the Cabinet War Rooms, and I suspect that there will be some of you in this room who have visited this museum, and for those who haven't, I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful museum, well worth the trip. So anyway, the War Cabinet sat and debated and argued around that table. They were arguing about matters of life and death. Secretaries took notes, and afterwards the notes were compiled, an accurate summary of the meeting was produced and circulated to the proper recipients. The original notes were supposed to be destroyed. One secretary, however, John Burgess, kept his notes. And today they may be found at the Churchill Archive, Churchill College, Cambridge University. Burgess employed an idiosyncratic shorthand. His handwriting varied between legible and execrable. And as the war progressed, his notes grew ever more cryptic, deciphering them as a chore. But on occasion, his notes provide a better sense of how the war cabinet functioned than the official minutes do. And this afternoon, when I repeat war cabinet discussions for you, I'm usually quoting from Burgess's notes. So here is an example. Um, I don't know if, how well that you can see it. Um, it's from September 11, 1940. This was some months after Dunkirk, which was when the British, which is the, the port from which the British managed to evacuate most of their army from the European mainland before the Germans could kill or capture them. 
thus staving off absolute disaster. However, Britain's ally, France, was about to surrender, and neither the USSR nor the US had entered the war yet, so the British Empire would soon be standing alone against Hitler, who had most of Europe at his feet. No one really saw how Britain, even supported by Australia, New Zealand, India, Canada, South Africa, could beat the Germans. Um, and the Germans had already begun the terrible bombing campaign of London called the Blitz. Members of the war cabinet believed that it was the prelude to an attempted invasion. At one point during the meeting on September 11, Churchill spoke. Um, no, I, mis I misspoke. Uh, at one point during the meeting, Eden spoke. He said, uh, according to the notes, saw the commander-in-chief this morning. One, he said, extension of German shipping down coast extreme. Two, guns on coast given to his command move two or three into southeast area to defend against invasion. Three, guns. We want one regiment of 36 Bofors guns. Bofors guns were used to shoot at low-flying, attacking German aircraft. Then Churchill spoke. Invasion anywhere else, not the same thing. Atlee spoke. Troops in reserve should be sent to the south coast. Eden, commander-in-chief had that in mind. We should keep tank and troops in, Maidstone, in the Maidstone area, which is the southeast coast, for action in Dungeness, Churchill speaks. Uh, the HMS Rodney, a battleship, should stay at Rossyth, which is up way up near Edinburgh. And then the uh, First Lord of the Admiralty, Alexander, spoke, expected this. In face of size of attack, have matter in hand. Well, I think that these minutes reveal the war cabinet, absolutely focused on saving their country and confident that they can do it, despite all odds. And yet, there were obvious divisions among the group. I've referred already to the ideological divide, and I'm not going to really talk about that in the paper. If you want to ask questions about it afterwards, I'd be happy to address it. There was also a quite obvious class divide within the War Cabinet. The conservative members were all more or less wealthy. Some were aristocratic. The labor ministers came from mixed backgrounds. Attlee was middle class. Cripps was the son of a lord. But Herbert Morrison was the son of a South London policeman. Ernest Bevan was the illegitimate son of a charwoman. He had labored on the docks of Bristol as a young man. In fact, he was the only member of the cabinet who had performed manual labor for a living. Um, and occasionally, one perceives class consciousness dividing this group. I'll give you a couple of examples. First, here is Anthony Eden, son of a baronet, uh, after the war, recalling Herbert Morrison in the war cabinet. Quote, 
He was a good rifleman, the kind of man you promote to Lance Corporal one week, and he may lose his stripes the next, but he'll be back up again soon. Cockneys make the best soldiers. Well, obviously that's how an officer refers to his subordinates, or how a baronet refers to his so-called social inferior. So perhaps Herbert Morrison felt he had something to prove. And doesn't it sound as if he's trying to do just that in a letter he wrote to the Lord Chancellor, whose name was Sir John Simon? Oh, that's Morrison, and here's Simon. And actually, just look at the photographs <laughs> for class difference. So Simon had graduated from the exclusive public school, Fetus. He had attained a first at Oxford, where he had served as president of the famous debating society, the Union, the Oxford Union. He had been a liberal in Asquith's government during World War I, and when the liberals split, he had joined an offshoot called the National Liberals, who supported the Conservative Party. So at just about the midpoint of the war, Herbert Morrison wrote to him, quote, May I say how much I enjoyed reading your speech of yesterday. There was only one thing which marred it, and that was the stupid printer's error, giving the date of the publication of Areopagitica as 1694 instead of 1649. Um, I think it's easy to imagine the unspoken assumptions, tensions, hesitations, resentments that must have been a part of the atmosphere of war cabinet meetings. In fact, Churchill had assembled his own team of rivals, as Doris Kearns Goodwin termed Abraham Lincoln's cabinet during the American Civil War. Churchill's men were constantly carping, backbiting, maneuvering for position. Lord Beaverbrook, who was um, a terrific intriguer, uh, employed flattery, and sometimes it worked. During one cabinet meeting, he passed a note to A.V. Alexander, a labor man serving as First Lord of the Admiralty. <coughs> Let me see if the next... Yeah, that's A.V. Alexander. Um, Beaverbrook passes him a note. It read, quote... I will do all I can to help you. I believe you will do the job better than anybody else. And Alexander became one of Beaverbrook's chief supporters in the cabinet. Other times, however, Beaverbrook's flattery failed. Quote, can we make a platform for you where I can stand at your side? I'm sure I can do so. I'm sure you can do so if you determine to build it. He wrote this to Ernest Bevan, the Minister of Labor. And if you think about it, he seems to be suggesting that Bevan build a platform to rival Churchill's. That's what Bevan thought, and he thought it very dangerous. This is Ernest Bevan. He wrote back to Beaverbrook, quote, I have no intention of building any platforms during the war outside the platform of the government itself. I've seen letters in which Beaverbrook flatters Herbert Morrison, letters where he flatters Stafford Cripps, a ton of letters uh, to Winston Churchill, 
where he lays on the flattery with a trowel. Um, and I think it's not surprising that by the time the war had finished, practically nobody trusted him. In 1945, Attlee cautioned newly elected members of the House of Commons, and I'm quoting, there are many people to whom it will be easy to talk. Chief among these is Beaverbrook. He is a magnet to all young men, and I warn you that if you talk to him, no good will come of it. Beware of flattery. <clears throat> well, you might object. Any group of strong individuals will jockey for position, and that's all Beaverbrook was doing. I agree. Still, I was struck by the intensity of discord and dislike within a cabinet that has been celebrated for the opposite. Beaverbrook despised Attlee, who, as you've just seen, returned the favor. Once he quit trying to flatter him, he rowed so bitterly with Ernest Bevan that the latter actually threatened to sue his cabinet colleague. He referred to the imposing John Anderson as il pomposo. He once called the religious Lord Halifax, and I'm quoting, a sort of Jesus in long boots. The long boots are needed because he has had to wade through the mud, but he was not responsible for the mud. Oh, dear, no. He could never make anything so dirty as mud, and the last thing he would think of would be to throw it at others. But of course, in fact, Lord Halifax was quite busy throwing mud at others. Um, I, I won't bore you with all the quotations I have found. And this kind of um, thinking was not limited uh, to Lord Beaverbrook. Everybody poked fun of the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Arthur Greenwood, who had a drinking problem, as again, I think just possibly the photograph suggests, quote, he cannot even sign his name after two o'clock in the afternoon. <clears throat> uh, um, Anthony Eden disdained Kingsley Wood, who was the chancellor of the Exchequer, quote, the little man will not be missed, he wrote, after Wood died suddenly. Bevan detested Herbert Morrison. At the war cabinet, Eden sat between the two men, and he found it, quote, rather uncomfortable, because whenever Morrison spoke at war cabinet meetings, Bevan would provide a sotto voce accompaniment of jibes and taunts. Someone once said of Morrison that he was his own worst enemy. Not while I'm alive, he ain't snapped Ernest Bevan. So how did Churchill attempt to keep his ill-assorted team in good temper? Well, he could be solicitous. Quote, I was sorry to see that you looked very tired the other night at the cabinet. I hope you'll not hesitate to take a well-earned holiday he wrote to a cabinet minister uh, who was recently recovered from the flu. Or he could be encouraging, quote, your speech was magnificent, most vigorous, and giving sense of strength and resource. He wrote this to another cabinet minister. 
When members of the team disagreed with each other, he worked to conciliate them. At one meeting, Anthony Eden declared that he would not attend a celebration of the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution because, quote, it is promoted under communist influence. Well, but in Russia, that's comparable to the king's birthday, argued the socialist Stafford Cripps, who had recently returned from a stint as Britain's ambassador to Russia. You mean the Tsar's death day, snapped Herbert Morrison, who distrusted and disliked Stafford Cripps. And then Churchill intervened calmly, quote, why not have a meeting sometime in November, no specific Russian date, to celebrate the Russian resistance? And with this compromise, the meeting concluded. <clears throat> when Churchill was barking, or sorry, when Churchill thought that a colleague was barking up the wrong tree, he could employ humor to change his mind. In July 1940, the Minister of Food, Frederick Woolton, recommended that Britons follow a more balanced diet. And Churchill wrote him a letter with the following few sentences, quote, almost all the food faddists I have ever known, nut eaters and the like, have died young after a long period of senile decay. <clears throat> the, the way to lose the war is to try to force the British public into a diet of milk, oatmeal, potatoes, etc., washed down on gala occasions with a little lime juice. <laughs> Sometimes Churchill backed down himself. In June 1942, the Nazis slaughtered 1,300 innocent Czech civilians and razed to the ground two villages this in reprisal for the assassination of a leading Nazi, Reinhard Heydrich. The War Cabinet met to discuss a response. Churchill advocated using the next moonlit night, and I'm quoting, to wipe out three German villages. Bevan agreed, quote, <clears throat> German responds to brute force and nothing else. The Secretary of State for India, Leo Amory, was even more ferocious. He advocated bombing highly populated towns, not mere villages. Ben Attlee spoke, quote, doubt if it is useful to enter into competition in frightfulness with Germans. And Herbert Morrison backed him up. <clears throat> if the RAF purposefully bombed German civilians, a cycle of frightfulness would ensue, and then, quote, public will say, why did you draw this down on us? The Secretary of State for Air, Archibald Sinclair, introduced a practical consideration. Bombing civilians would represent, quote, diversion of effort from military objective. And then Anderson, Sir John Anderson, agreed with that, quote, it costs us something and them nothing, by which he meant that if Britain bombed defenseless towns or villages, uh, she would lose an opportunity to bomb important military objectives, while Germany would lose only civilian lives. And then Anthony Eden, too, swung against the proposed action, quote, waste of a moonlit night, bigger diversion than I had thought. So it was three for bombing German civilians, 
five opposed. And Churchill argued, quote, my instinct is all the other way, but he deferred, quote, I submit unwillingly to the view of cabinet against. <clears throat> so, a solicitous, supportive, humorous, democratic prime minister kept his fractious war cabinet on an even keel. It sounds too good to be true, because in fact, often it was too good to be true. Um, some war cabinet ministers deemed Churchill uh, to be an unre unrealistic romantic. Quote, it does drive me to despair when he works himself up into a passion of emotion when he ought to make his brain think and reason. This was uh, Lord Halifax writing in his diary. Others deemed him a tyrant, like a rogue elephant. That's a famous quote, according to another of his colleagues. Still another wrote in his diary, what he does is jump to decisions, ill-considered, and then say that it shows weakness to recede. Anthony Eden, too, kept a diary, and it is sprinkled with comments like the following, quote, Winston wants to move all the pieces himself, or I find Winston's dictator moods irritating. Now, none of Churchill's colleagues were shrinking violets, and when Churchill acted like a dictator, they objected. Here are two examples, quote, I think you will wish to withdraw your minute. I do not accept any of the findings in the third paragraph. Do not let us wound each other if we can avoid it. And that's A.V. Alexander, one of the least important of the war ministers, writing to the prime minister. Or here's Frederick Woolton, the uh, recipient of the humorous letter about food faddists, um, responding to something else. Quote, I told him speaking of Churchill, I told him that if he continued to make public comments in the strain of those he made today, he would have to find another minister of food. He's a bully, and it's necessary to deal brutally with him. And then Churchill was not a good chairman of meetings. He loved the sound of his own voice. Um, he thought um, whatever he had to say was more interesting than whatever anybody else had to say, which possibly was often true. But let me quote to you again uh, from Eden's diary. Cabinet in evening, when Winston spoke to us at tremendous length of all aspects of military situation. Or the Australian Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, who was in London and attended a cabinet meeting uh, when he was there, uh, spoke of, quote, complete ignoring of time by the war cabinet makes me very cross. Churchill rarely read the notes prepared for his guidance prior to war cabinet meetings, and Clement Attlee took him up on this and on his tendency to pontificate in a famous letter, and I will quote uh, just a little piece of it. Often half an hour or more is wasted explaining what could have been grasped by two or three minutes reading of the document. Not infrequently, a phrase catches your eye, which gives rise to a disquisition on an interesting point only slightly connected with the subject matter. The result is long delays and unnecessarily long cabinets. 
I consider the present position inimical to the successful performance of the tasks imposed upon us as a government and injurious to the war effort. So it's not surprising that some of his colleagues concluded they could run the war cabinet better than he could. Anthony Eden, whom Churchill designated his heir apparent in the autumn of 1942, dreamt of the succession, um, but he loyally refrained from undermining the prime minister during the war. The diaries of Frederick Walton reveal that he toyed with the idea of mounting a challenge to Churchill, but Walton never took action. Herbert Morrison intended to replace Clem Attlee as leader of the Labor Party and then to challenge Churchill for leadership of the country whenever the next general election took place. And he thought it might take place during the war, and if so, so be it. Lord Beaverbrook gave serious thought to mounting a challenge. Um, and he took some preliminary steps, but never a decisive one for complicated reasons that I'd be happy to go into uh, after the talk. It was Stafford Cripps who came closest to mounting a direct attempt at overthrow. Churchill faced it and beat it. And I'm going to conclude the talk today with a brief explanation of the Churchill versus Cripps saga. So first, a little bit about Stafford Cripps. Before the war, he had been a very successful barrister. He had a mind like a calculating machine. He had astonishing capacity for work and organization. He had the ability to inspire devotion among his followers. He had a deep patriotic love for his country. Labor Party leaders feared Stafford Cripps because he was both effective and extremely left-wing. He had advocated a popular front uh, including communists as well as liberals and conservatives to confront fascism before the war. Uh, the Labor Party leaders would have nothing to do with communists. And when Cripps would not back down, they expelled him from the party. Cripps began the war as a man without a party, a member of parliament, but without a party. And then he was a rather idiosyncratic figure. And that was to have consequences. He didn't drink for reasons of health, but also because he really was a Puritan. He stuck to a vegetarian diet for reasons of health, but also because he disapproved of gluttony. He followed the Alexander technique, which is a method of using movement and posture to alleviate pain and various afflictions. And as a result, he always stood straight as a post. Um, for some unknown reason, he chose to wear unflattering wire rim spectacles. He was a militant socialist and a militant Christian. In other words, a militant Christian socialist. And he did not appeal to Winston Churchill at all. Quote, he has all the virtues I dislike and none of the vices I admire. <laughs> but... Churchill recognized his great abilities and his patriotism. When the war began, he sent Cripps to Russia as Britain's ambassador. Experience in Russia disillusioned Cripps with Soviet-style communism. 
But because he continued to sympathize with Russian foreign policy, the British Foreign Office distrusted him. Cripps felt, and indeed was, underutilized in Russia, and he wanted to return to Britain. He thought he could make a greater contribution to the war effort there. Germany invaded Russia in June 1941. Nobody imagined that the Soviets could stand up to a blitzkrieg. After all, even the vaunted French army had collapsed in front of one, but they did. And in Britain, people felt immense gratitude. Previously, they'd been being bombed by the Germans. Now the Russians were being bombed, and they were taking it and dishing it back. Quote, thank God for Russia is a frequent expression of the very deep and fervent feeling for that country which permeates wide sections of the public. This is a home, office, a home intelligence branch report to the government. Well, given Russia's newfound popularity, Cripps reaped the benefit. Quote, someday Sir Stafford will return from Moscow, wrote one journalist. He will have a great following. His sense of power, never modest, will be developed fully. He will be dressed up in the garb of leadership, and he will find somewhere to go. In fact, Cripps was probably already eyeing the top position even from Moscow. Churchill certainly thought so. He told Eden he'd let Cripps come home all right, and then, quote, I will put my fist into his face. <laughs> Cripps returned to Britain in the middle of January 1942, and many people thought he had come to claim the top job. Churchill did not punch him, but he intended to prick his bubble. He invited him to lunch. Well, Stafford, how have you returned, friend or foe? Cripps replied, a friendly critic or a critical friend. Churchill offered him a post in the cabinet, but not in the war cabinet, and Cripps turned that down as beneath his dignity and ability. And then he gave a press conference about Russia, so interesting, I'm quoting, that the journalists almost forgot to take notes and afterwards burst into applause. He gave an address on the BBC about the Russians heroically coping with horrific conditions. A well-informed and well-connected listener wrote afterwards, quote, the trouble in the past has been that there has been no one to replace Winston. Now, Cripps is the man. Cripps's popularity soared, and simultaneously, Churchill's plummeted. For just at this moment came very bad war news. First, three damaged German warships sailed up the French coast from Brest to their home ports without being discovered until it was too late. And many wondered how the Navy could protect England from invasion if it couldn't stop three boats sailing in plain view. And then two days later, much, much worse, the fall of Singapore. The Japanese captured 130,000 British and Imperial British soldiers, three times as many as the Germans had taken in France. That night, Woolton wrote in his diary that Churchill was, quote, heading for a downfall. The chairman of the Parliamentary Conservative Caucus, which was called the 1922 Committee, approached Woolton, and Woolton wrote in his diary, they are wondering how long Churchill will last. The chairman came to see whether I had any views about succeeding him. The party wouldn't mind having me if I would take it on. But it was not 
Frederick Walton, who worried Churchill. He moved swiftly to reorganize his cabinet and war cabinet, too. He was a romantic, yes, but he could be an efficient political butcher. He got rid of most of the remaining former advocates of appeasement. He dumped dead wood regardless of party and ideology. He knew that he must recognize Cripps, and he did it in a brilliant way. He appeared to concede ground, bringing his rival into the war cabinet after all, but he appointed him to be the leader of the House of Commons. That was enough to stop Cripps attempting a coup at the moment, although not enough to stop him thinking about it and talking about it with his friends. Churchill knew about that. He had offered Cripps a poisoned chalice. Only Cripps didn't understand. The leader of the House of Commons interprets government policy to House members and House opinion to the government. Well, Cripps never went to the House of Commons uh, bar because he didn't drink. He belonged to no, he rarely went into the cafeteria because he hardly ate. Um, he belonged to no party, and so he had no natural clack of men who would automatically support him. And in fact, many in the Labor Party continued to distrust him. Of course, the conservatives feared and hated him, and so did most of the liberals. So he was entirely unsuited for the job Churchill had given him. And then in Cripps's first speech to the House as its leader, he condemned dog racing, horse racing, boxing matches, personal extravagance, together with every other form of wastage, small or large, and all unnecessary expenditure. I'm quoting there. Well, everybody knew that Cripps was a Puritan, so nobody could accuse him of hypocrisy. But Herbert Morrison, who knew what his Cockney constituents loved, told Cripps that he was politically tone deaf. The Conservative Party chief whip said he was, quote, amazed by Cripps's speech. And a liberal figure said, quote, if he goes on this way, he will not be popular for very long. So Cripps had managed to alienate leaders of all three parties on his first day. So already the air was leaking out of Cripps's balloon, and the pin that let it all rush out came a couple of months later. The government had arranged a two-day debate on its policies in India, but MPs began leaving the debating chamber at lunchtime, even though the prime minister was speaking and Cripps was appalled. Members were rude, and they were putting their bellies ahead of their responsibilities. And the next day, he said so. He chastised the House of Commons, quote, I do not think that we can conduct our proceedings here with the dignity and the weight with which we should conduct them unless members are prepared to pay greater attention to their duties. Well, the House of Commons rose up as one to defend its honor. Conservatives, liberals, Laborites, socialists, all peppered him with hostile questions. And then came the war cabinet later in the afternoon. And here I'm quoting from Burgess's notes. Churchill, why encourage criticism? Cripps didn't. Regretted lost opportunity for House members to express support of India policy. Churchill, silent support is perhaps best. House of Commons in very good mood. Better to have left them alone. Cripps, general effect was bad. Churchill disagreed. 
Crips. They might wait at least until PM had finished his speech. Churchill, didn't worry me. <laughs> Cripps's stock nosedived. Churchill had him where he wanted, and Cripps decided to resign. Well, that wasn't quite what Churchill wanted now. He was afraid that another political crisis might threaten his government. And so he told Cripps on the night of September 30, 1942, not to resign yet. Cripps replied that Churchill was doing a damn poor job of running the war, and the two men launched into a bitter argument. Over the next two days, Churchill met with various advisors, Cripps met with various advisors, Anthony Eden served as the middleman. Um, Churchill wanted to continue to take advantage of Cripps's great abilities, but not in the war cabinet where he was a rival, rather just inside the larger cabinet. He wanted to make him the minister of aircraft production. And he instructed Eden to explain this to Cripps and that Cripps must not resign. Cripps told Eden, and I've read it in the diary, quote, we should all get on so much better without Winston. Well, the Allies had just mounted Operation Torch, the invasion of West Africa. Churchill now simply outmaneuvered Cripps. He told him it would be unpatriotic to resign and perhaps to force a crisis in the middle of so important a maneuver. He must hold off for the time being, and by appealing to Cripps's patriotism, he got him to agree. But I ask you to think about it for a moment. If Operation Torch went badly, then everybody in the government might be resigning. If it went well, the government would be popular, and Cripps would resign alone. Um, it was heads, you lose, tails, everybody loses, and the coin came up heads. Operation Torch succeeded, Cripps resigned, nobody noticed. They were too busy celebrating the success of Operation Torch. Churchill reshuffled his cabinet and war cabinet again. He made Cripps the Minister of Aircraft Production, an important post, but one outside the war cabinet, and that is where Stafford Cripps remained for the remainder of the war, doing very important and useful work, but no longer a rival to the Prime Minister. So, to conclude and to sum up, the achievements of this man uh, and of his war cabinet are imperishable. Prime Minister Winston Churchill was a giant. I don't think anybody else could have done what he did. He led his country to victory over the Nazis. He kept a disputatious group of high-powered, hard men working together. He was like a great political juggler and he managed to keep eight balls in the air all at once, but only just long enough. The balls all came crashing down in the summer of 1945, and my book explains why. It shows why. It shows not only the familiar pieces inside the kaleidoscope in a new way, but also really it explains why Winston Churchill lost the general election of 1945, an election that everybody thought he would win. And so today I've given you uh, just a glimpse of an aspect, really, of the explanation. Uh, it's not how Churchill's war cabinet is usually portrayed, um, but as everybody knows, it serves no good purpose to airbrush history. And that's the end of my talk.